Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus 25. We continue to study this book, this great book. And we looked at the introductory part of this chapter, verses 1 through to 9. And we thought of the, the instructions that the Lord gave in the commencement of the building of the tabernacle, which was going to be the center of the place where God would dwell amongst His people. And it would be a place where the people would gather for God's worship. And now, this evening, I want us to think about verses 10 through to 22, specifically regarding the ark, the, this furniture of the ark. I had thought that we would be able to do more, uh, look into the next section two of the table of showbread, but I don't think we have the time. So we will have to <clears throat> concentrate on this uh, furnishing, this furniture of the tab uh, tabernacle, which is the ark of the covenant that we have in those verses before us. But as we think about this, I want us to just um, think of the uh, very important matter. And, and uh, it is something for us to take to our hearts and maybe even memorize it. I want you uh, to keep this in your mind at all times from this chapter 25 to chapter 40 of the book of Exodus. You see, everyone's focus is on the tabernacle from now on, which was the focal point of much of Old Testament worship, which then was replaced with the temple. And it was so because of the four things that the tabernacle symbolized. So we ought to bear that in mind and even memorize these four things because we see the tabernacle is fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in the temple, yes, in David's day and Solomon's day, and in, it's so central. And when you realize these four things about it, you realize why it's so important. So first thing is this. Number one, that uh, that was the tabernacle, or later on the temple, was the spiritual and physical dwelling place of God. It was the spiritual and physical dwelling place of God. The glory cloud dwelt there. And that was the symbol that God dwelt with his people. It was God's dwelling place. That's the first thing. The second thing, number two, it was the central place of worship. Not just the, the spiritual and physical presence of God, but it was the central place of worship. It is where you, you came to, to offer your praises and your prayers and your sacrifices to God. So it's the central place of worship. The third thing, number two, three, is that it was the palace of the great king. It was the palace of the great king. That they would, be, would come to be instructed there. People would, become, would come there to be instructed there. The tabernacle was called in the scriptures a palace. The Ark of the Covenant was God's throne from which he ruled ruled the world. And so they, they would come to the door, as it were, the, the threshold, the doorway of the tabernacle to receive commandments and instruction from their king, who was who? Jehovah. Jehovah was their king. So people would come to hear the king, the Lord, not a man king, not a human king, but the Lord himself would be their king. The fourth thing is this. Um, it was the sign and symbol of reconciliation. The very existence of the tabernacle was 
proof that God had reconciled himself with his people and that uh, through faith, and I would say through faith in Christ, you could enter into a relationship or friendship with the Almighty God. Now tonight, we are going to uh, talk about that, the, the uh, furniture in the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, and uh, thinking about the dimension of the tabernacle and so on, as, as long as we have time. You remember that God, time and time again, uh, repeatedly says this, that uh, don't vary from uh, the blueprint. Go right by the blueprint. Always go by the pattern that I have shown you, he says to Moses. If there is any variance from the blueprint, the whole, nothing is, is, is going to work. Uh, and it's going to, we've got to get it right, the Lord is saying. You've got to get this right by the blueprint. Because everything has its place and everything has its significance. And, and so it is for the worship of God. We have to go by the blueprint of the scripture. We can't just have worship the way we think it is, it is suitable for God. And so everything you do, whatever you might do for the praise of God, worship of God, you have to ask yourself, where is it found in the word of God? Is there a positive command? Is there a right uh, example in the scriptures for this? So you can, for, for the tabernacle, you can look up books um, that have illustrations of what the, uh, these furnishings and the tabernacle possibly looked like. And it would be helpful to have this in your mind and, and, and study this even further. But I, I would ask you to picture with me in your mind the various things that are written here and are described. Inside the tabernacle, <coughs> there is a courtroom. We will see that later on. A courtyard surrounded by a screen. And in the far end of that uh, courtyard, in the west end, there is the tabernacle covered with animal skins and leather, which is divided then into two rooms. And in the courtyard, there is just the two things. Uh, there is the altar, an altar, and there is a bowl, laver, for washing. There is then the Ark of the Covenant, which was the only piece of furniture in the second room. In the back room of the tabernacle, uh, the, the altar of burnt offering, which is, which is a big altar. And right in the middle of the courtyard uh, is this front um, entrance. Um, it's over to the east of the, of the tabernacle, faced east. And uh, people uh, think about, well, why was this entrance to the tabernacle at the east side of the, uh, of the tabernacle? But it is just pure guesswork, and various people have thought about this. But probably because the east, from the east, the sun rose in the east. And remember that uh, our Lord Jesus Christ is described in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2. It said of, that the sun of righteousness arising with, uh, <clears throat> with his wings. <clears throat> and uh, th there the sun is S-U-N, not S-O-N. Sun of righteousness arising with healing in his wings. And it's, it's a beautiful thing to be, uh, to, to watch that, to have all of this worship service with the sun rising uh, of this optimism and the hope that it brings 
of a new day, new blessing of God. So as soon as you come in the gateway, you come to the altar of burnt offerings. And we will look into that in, in future. Then the, the next thing that you come to is the labor. And you see that that was a bowl of water uh, where the priests would purify themselves before they went through all their various ministries and ministries in, at the tabernacle. There was a table of showbread, which we will look into in future, which was to the left of the door. When you walked in the front room, the altar of incense, which was the right before the veil, separating the two rooms. And then you have the candlestick. We hopefully will see that next, next week, God willing, which was on the other side of the front room. So you have these thoughts. This is a vague picture maybe in your mind right now, but go and study it and look, up, look these things up and see the structure of how things were laid uh, as various artists and uh, Bible scholars have, have drawn pictures of these things. But dear friends, I want you to, uh, to get these things in your mind. I want you to uh, use your imagination uh, about, about these things because throughout uh, chapters 25 through to chapter 40, you've got to take these things and think about it yourself. What did it look like? And one of the things that I want us to think about is the size of the tabernacle, the size of it. The scriptures speak about in the next chapter, actually, chapter 26, it speaks about it in verses 15 to 30. And the dimensions of the tabernacle were, were this. There was the length of it, 30 cubits. That's approximately 45 feet. It's 13.7 meters. The, the width of it, of the tabernacle, was 10 cubits. That's ap approximately 15 feet or four and a half meters. Then there is 10 cubits height, again 15 feet. Uh, so these are the measurements that the scripture gives us of the tabernacle. Uh, it was divided into two rooms, as I've said. The first room called the holy place, and it's 30 feet long, 15 by 15. And the most important room in the back room is, is that back room, which is the Holy of Holies. And it's a perfect cubit, or a, per, a perfect cube, I should say, 15 by 15 by 15. Perfect cube. Um, and, and so that's, that's the dimensions of the tabernacle itself. But let us now look at the, uh, the descriptions that are given here from verses 10 to 22 of the Ark of the Covenants and the teaching that comes from that. Most important piece of the furniture is the Ark of the Covenant. It's called uh, several things in the scriptures. The Bible refers to this as the Ark of the Testimony. It's called the Ark of God. It's called the Ark of Israel or the Ark of the Lord of Hosts. But it's the most important piece of furniture in the whole of tabernacle, we could say. There's so much bound up in the Ark of the Covenant. Look at verse 10 then. It says, and they shall make an ark of shittim wood, that's acacia wood, two cubits, and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. Now, now you use your mind to think about this, because we are going to see how beautiful things are. Look at verses 11 to 22. And the final uh, 
verse is very uh, important. We could underline that final verse. It says, and thou shalt overlay it with pure gold within and without. Thou shalt overlay it and shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about it. And, and so on. We've read this already, and I would ask you to read that, that portion for yourself. But you, you, I trust you get a picture of this Ark of the Covenant. It's like a box, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, 27 inches high. And uh, you think about that. What, what does it look like? It's made of shittim wood. That's acacia wood. Now, everything in the temple is made of that kind of wood because it is a hard wood, it is durable, it is indestructible. It will just carry on lasting. It will last as, as long as it is kept. It's, it will just carry on lasting. That's why they made it of that. The wood and the whole thing inside and out, it's overlaid with pure gold. Now, this is 14 carat pure gold inside and out uh, and on the top of it, around the top border of it. It had a crown-like border and it had a ring at each corner so that you could put a, a, a pole through those rings and carry the ark without touching the whole of the ark. And it was topped by a mercy seat that is a slab of gold, pure gold. On top of the box, there is this slab of Pure gold, the mercy seat. And then on each side of the top, there were two angels, the cherubim. Like uh, uh, these spiritual creatures, angel-like creatures with mighty wings overshadowing the whole box. And so these uh, cherubim were also of gold. And so we are talking about a lot of gold, millions and millions of pounds worth of gold. Is there. But what's inside the ark? What's inside of it? Eventually, inside the ark of the covenant, there were uh, three things to start with. There was the two tables of stone that Moses got from Jehovah. The, the tables of the law are included in the ark. And then eventually, there were other two things added. There was a pot full of manna that God provided for them in the wilderness. And then, of course, there was Aaron's rod that budded. And so we are, we are going to get to those things. But those are the three things that were there. The Aaron's rod that budded, that symbolizes what? It symbolizes spiritual leadership, the pot of manna. It represents God's provision for them. And then the law represents God's rule in God's kingship. Now, what's the significance of this amazing box, this gorgeous box of gold? What's the significance of it? There are four things that it symbolizes, <clears throat> this ark symbolizes. Number one, um, of, of what the ark symbolizes, number one, it was the pledge. The ark was the pledge and guarantee of Jehovah's presence that that Ark of the Covenant was the holiest thing in all the world. It was the pledge and guarantee of God's presence. There was nothing in all of this world as holy as the Ark of the Covenant. Nothing. If, if 
anybody other than the, the person who was supposed to touch it, when it was supposed to touch it, touched it, they would die. That's what would happen to them. If they touched it and they were not supposed to touch it, they would die. Whoever you are, it doesn't matter who you are. You might have been the most faithful Christian at the time. You might have been a pagan or anything. If you touch that Ark of the Covenant, you die. And you have actually one instance, don't you? You remember it's recorded in 2 Samuel 6. There was a, there was a man who was carrying uh, the Ark along uh, and, he, uh, and they hit a bump, it says. And the, the Ark was going to fall. And Uzzah, the Israelite, he tried to save it. And as soon as he touched the ark, he died. He shouldn't have touched it. It's too holy to be touched by human hands. It's recorded in Samuel 6 and verse 6. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God smote him there for his error. And there he died by the ark of God. That's how holy that was, dear friends, because that was the pledge and the guarantee of God's holy presence with his people. And you couldn't just go and reach out to it. It's too holy. And <clears throat> that teaches us a lot of lessons if you begin to think about the holy things of God. The holy things of God. Number two, what it symbolizes that was the supreme place of divine revelation. It's the supreme place of divine revelation. It was at the Ark of the Covenant where God promised to reveal His will to His people. Now notice verse 22. What does it say? And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the Ark of the Testimony. And all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. It's the place of supreme divine revelation. God is going to reveal himself from the ark. Now notice all the various um, words that are used, various qualifying phrases um, that having to do with God speaking. So for example, you see in verse 22, you see, it says it's from above. This isn't the word of man. What is being said is God's word that is going to be said from there. It's the word of God. This is the, the voice coming down from above. And then the second thing is this. From above the mercy seat, it says. The only way that God can speak to people is for them to be reconciled and redeemed and their sins be washed. And so that's the picture of the mercy seat. To speak from above the mercy seat. And then the third thing that you see, this phrase, qualifying phrase, and from between the two cherubims, the holiness and the importance and the awe of such a revelation, and it's surrounded by angels. And so here is, in the mercy seat, you have the place where God reveals himself and reveals his will to his people, the pledge of his presence. And the other thing that, we notice this, the third thing that this symbolizes, it symbolizes of God's rule over the world. God's rule over the world. The Ark of the Covenant was God's symbol that he not only ruled Israel, but he rules 
the rest of the world. Why do I say that? Because from that throne, he would bless the nations that blessed Israel. And he would curse those nations that cursed Israel. So it was a symbol of God's rule over the whole earth. And the fourth uh, symbolism of the ark is this. It was the place of propitiation. It was the place of propitiation. And this is wonderful when you think about it. It was the place where, uh, where they took the blood that had been shed at the altar and sprinkled it at the, the mercy seat or on the mercy seat. Now, there is a tremendous gospel, this good news of salvation in this picture. And we need to understand this, dear friends. And Christians don't have a right understanding of these things. And they think, oh, well, the gospel is not in the Old Testament. And uh, if you have a C.I. Schofield Bible, it will tell you that very thing. So if you have one, throw it out. Don't use it. <clears throat> I know some of you have. Um, so number one, some of the things that you ought to think about, about this teaching here that is teaching propitiation it talks about our text talks about the mercy seat there is a mercy seat above that box it's made of pure gold what was the mercy seat there was this slab of gold on top of the ark of the covenant now another word for mercy seat is crown and that word crown is what is known as the propitiatory. That's what it's called, the propitiatory. That was the place where propitiation was made, and it's important to notice that the, the mercy seat, the, the, there is the law of God. The law of God was under the mercy seat, was in the, in, the, uh, in the ark, in that box, under the mercy seat. Now, what's propitiation, you might say? Propitiation is one of the most important words in all of the scriptures. So if you want to know what's the most important word in the scripture, you, you study propitiation. Without propitiation, there is no salvation. Without propitiation, all of us would be lost. It only occurs three or four times in the Bible, but without that, the, the cross means nothing. Most liberals don't believe in propitiation, and this is why I have the problem with Schofield Bible. In its references, it, it, in that Bible, it denigrates in these passages and ridicules and denies any such thing as propitiation in these passages. But if we don't have propitiation, he doesn't see it, you see. He doesn't see that this is teaching this. But if we don't have um, this propitiation, we have, we have nothing. We don't have salvation. We don't have anything from God. We are going to go to hell. Propitiation simply means to turn away God's wrath by means of a violent death. That's what it means. It means to turn away God's wrath by means of a violent death. Now, those who reject propitiation do so because they think it's a primitive idea. That's what the primitives did. And these people who, who think about, you know, that the old, olden days, people were very nice and the New Age movement and all these people who, who uh, are telling us that we should, uh, we should go back to our roots and Christianity is something foreign to us. Have you, have you studied the Aztecs? Have you studied what they did in South America? In one day, just uh, it would have been last week sometime, uh, I was reading about this, 
that they, 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 when they built one of their minarets and one of those structures that everybody goes and, and say, well, they were so nice people. They didn't kill animals and so on. But they murdered 84,000 men uh, in, in the sacrifice to their God. When this, this minaret was built for, for, the, for the worship of their gods, well, BBC wouldn't tell you that, but that is exactly what they did. But this, that's, they say, well, that's primitive idea. Well, that's what primitive religions used to do. They sacrificed their babies. They sacrificed their people to satisfy their gods. But the reason why these primitive people had a twisted and distorted primitive view of propitiation, because you see they were trying appeasing the wrath of their god, is for the same reason that many ancient cultures have their own distorted and twisted fables of a creation account and the Noah's flood account. Virtually every culture in the world has something. They have their, their hymns of creation that had some similarity to biblical account. They had their stories of the flood, some similarities to ours. You go to China, they have their stories. To, to um, Japan, they have their stories. To, to South America, to various parts of Africa. You go to Greenland, they have their stories of a creation. There was a, there was a man on a boat with his wife and with some animals. But it's, it's a twisted account of the scriptures. The scriptures give us the full account, the true account of these things. And so the, the reason that all these primitive non-Christian cultures have stories like the Bible, and the reason all these various cultures have some type of perverted propitiation of their gods is because the Bible is true and the human race uh, has a unity about it, and they, they, they all left uh, the, the true religion. They, they all left it. They forsook it. And they wandered off, and so all their ideas about life was perverted. But there is still the semblance of truth out there in all of these things. So you see some of these things in the world. And so the Bible teaches that the only way that a sinner can be accepted with God is what? And, and since... The wages of sin is death. It is by God, uh, he must provide for us to either go through a violent death uh, but, or to provide someone for us to do that very thing, to go through this death on our behalf as a substitute in the place of sinners upon whom God's anger and wrath would be poured out. God's, God is angry with the wicked every day, the scripture says. That's what the Bible says. God is angry with the wicked every day. And the anger of God destroys. And unless that anger of God uh, is, is turned away from us, we are going to be consumed by it. The scripture says in, in the New Testament that God is a consuming fire. And the only way the anger of God can be turned away is for somebody who can endure the anger and survive to stand between us and the anger of God. And that's Jesus Christ, our blessed Lord. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the Son of Man, He propitiated God's wrath. He turned away God's wrath from us, uh, uh, enduring that wrath Himself on the cross. He, he satisfied God's justice. God's justice, you see, demands 
that the wages of sin be death. When we break God's law, the, the wages of that, the punishment for that is death. But Jesus Christ died the death that we should have died. So when the priest would come in, um, in, in the place and they would take some of the blood from the sacrificial victim, the animal, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, that was symbolic of the fact that uh, atonement has been made, propitiation has been made, the symbol of the work of Jesus Christ that he was going to come and fulfill, that God's anger has been turned away through the Lord Jesus Christ, of which this sacrificial animal was a sign and a symbol of that. So I hope you take these things. It's actually a picture of a wonderful picture of the gospel. And it was the law then underneath. The, uh, the law of God, the two tables of stone that Moses brought down the mount, given by Jehovah, that was underneath. And you see, the, 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 the law screams out for our condemnation. The law screams out. Broke, when we break the law, it screams out for satisfaction. If you have broken the law of God, the law then will condemn us until it's silenced. The screaming of it is silenced by, by blood. So, so the, it would be silenced either by us and eternity in hell, suffering eternity in hell, or by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ in our place and taking an eternity of hell that we deserve on himself. And so here you have a great symbol of the Ark of the Covenant with the propitiation on top. The blood sprinkled on the propitiation made the screaming law that was underneath it silence. Because everything that it demanded death, uh, condemnation, punishment for sin, everything it demanded, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ fulfilled. And it's all pictured here. It's all typed here. And so here is a picture that you have a tr tremendous presentation, the gospel before your very eyes. So the Bible speaks of the same thing. It's the same gospel throughout the ages. It's the same truth. But in Jesus Christ, we have the fulfillment. It's, we have the, the, the picture now is in the person. It's now that we have the reality. We don't have him in the picture book. We have the person himself coming to us. And so um, the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat covering the law, looked forward to the day of the Lord Jesus Christ's death and what he would satisfy the claims of God's law against us and when he died in our place. Now, there's something else to notice about the Ark of the Covenant, and that's not uh, only that the mercy seat covered the law, but also the very fact the law was in the Ark. The law was in the Ark. And this is so important. And much of the more uh, modern Western Christians, British or American or whatever, have lost sight of this. The goal of atonement. What's the goal of atonement? What's the goal of salvation? Why does God save? What's the goal of it? Is it so that you just twiddle your thumbs and wait to go to heaven? Is that what, what the goal of salvation is? That we just wait. We're just waiting to go to heaven. No. We remember what took place on the mercy seat of propitiation. Uh, so before we go on, uh, you, you, have you ever thought about this? The goal, 
That, that always has to be on your mind. What's the purpose? Why did Jesus Christ die? What's the purpose of this? Why does God propitiate? Why did God propitiate or Jesus propitiate God? Why did God provide a way whereby his justice could be satisfied? Why does God forgive sins? Why did God make atonement for sin? Why did God provide for redemption? Why does God provide us mercy? You see, there's a purpose of the vision of the law within the ark itself. God's law in the midst of that ark tells you why God provided redemption for sinners. Think about this. Look at this. The goal of redemption, the goal of salvation, the goal of atonement is the rule of God over a kingdom. Every time we pray, thy kingdom come, this is what we are talking about. The kingdom of the Lord, the presence of God with his people, the rule of the Lord in this world. That's what we are talking about. A world that is subject to the law of God, the law of the covenant, and joyfully so. And this is, dear friends, this is a picture of the church. The church of Jesus Christ is to joyfully submit to the law of God. See, so this is what it's talking about. For the, for the church of Christ to actually live joyfully after salvation. To live joyfully and, um, and effectively as good soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ. As those who, who go and make great exploits. That's what it is. So that they might live their lives in this world, the short life that they have, for the glory of God. Following the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the goal is. To glorify God. That's your chief end. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's the goal. But dear friends, that's not the kind of attitude that many people have. This, there is this defective and truncated faith which stops at the altar. That's what we have. A Christianity in evangelicalism of today all we have is the altar. And even people have altars. That's why in so many churches, Roman Catholic churches, Anglican churches, and even various evangelical churches, they have an altar. They even call it an altar call. What a horrible thing to think about it. You know, have they thought about it? Why are they saying these things? There's, there's defective ideas about what the Scripture teaches about these things. The altar signifies redemption. It sets forth the rebirth of the believer. But rebirth, for what? Without the dimension of the law, without us following Christ. When we talk about the law of God, it's, it's to follow Christ, to know His will, and that is, is revealed. It means following the Bible in our lives. That's what it means. Without the dimension of the law of God, the Word of God, life is denied meaning. The purpose of rebirth. We have no idea then, why have we been saved? Why is God keeping us in this world? You know, there are so many people say, well, the Lord has saved me, but I don't know what to do. The Lord saved me, I just, I'm just waiting to go to heaven. And not surprisingly, if I could use this term, and I, I hope it doesn't offend you, but the, this altar-centered faith is what I would call a heaven-centered and rapture-centered rather than God and Christ-centered. It seeks to escape 
from the world rather than the fulfillment of God's calling and the law of God. Word in the world. Modern Christianity has no knowledge of the throne. Altar-centered, or when people talk about being cross-centered, living a cross-centered life, what does that actually mean? Do you know what it means? What, what is a cross-centered Christianity? Is that something that the concept that the scripture talks about? You see, the altered center, altar-centered Christianity stops at the altar. It asks the question, what must I do to be saved? And it preaches the gospel to sinners, but it stops there. So now what? Now what? You just wait. Just be happy with the fact that you're forgiven. And just wait for your death. It's actually quite morbid when you think about it. And so there is this attitude. We don't need the law of God. This is why the Lord's Day, why is it that the Lord's Day is being discarded in our day? We are living in a generation now that the Christian Sabbath is not treated as being holy. There are people who, who take it. Well, if it suits me, I'll go to church. I will keep the day holy. But no, I'm too busy. I've got work to do. I've got shopping to do. I've got cleaning to do. I've got this to do and that to do. Well, that's the kind of the Christianity that we have become. It has become an altar-centered altar Christianity that it all is simply happy about salvation, but not obedience to the Word of God. That's what I'm talking about. And this is what this concept of the Ark of the Covenant is teaching. The law is within it. Yes, there is salvation above it. There's the mercy seat above it. But the law is, is within it. Still is, is to be obeyed. There are people who forget the law. And, and they say, well, I've been forgiven. I'm a Christian. But they are not showing the fruit of salvation, which is to follow Christ. If we love him, we keep his commandments, the scripture says. Oh, people say, well, I've been redeemed. Praise God. That's it. I mean, that's the end result, they think. There's nothing beyond this. Why am I even existing? Why am I even working? Nothing makes meaning. So there's some Christians, because of this kind of attitude, when they're working, it means nothing to them. They're not really doing it for the glory of God. They get easily frustrated. They, they, they think, oh, no, I'm not happy with this. I'm, I just want to go to heaven. When we are ill, we, we, we refer to these things. Well, I'm not. There, there's a balance here, of course. But this balance has been tipped to one side. And that just stops at the altar and doesn't go beyond to, to the obedience and the faithfulness. So when the scripture speaks about being faithful to the word of God, this is what it's talking about. Obedience. We were singing to them. We trust and obey. And you work through those lines. One by one, even go home tonight and you go, just pause at the end and just think about what, what are we singing about? Are we really, do we know what we are singing about? The people say, well, Jesus Christ washed away my sins. That's it. Praise God. I'm just going to spend the rest of my, my life praising God for that and wait and, uh, uh, and, and sing these, these songs about heaven. And just wait till Jesus Christ comes. And I, I even heard somebody recently saying, well, I'm just waiting for the rapture. That's, that's what. And I have to say, well, I, I think you need to study the whole subject of the rapture. Uh, is it really in the Bible? But you see, in the Bible, the reason the Lord Jesus Christ washed away our sins is so that we would walk after him. To be disciples and to obey 
his law. The reason he redeemed us is so that the law in the ark that, that had been silenced in its claims against us, now we, we, we could become, it becomes ours, the way of life for us. And that, that which governs our thoughts and our living by which we would, we would please God. There have been people that ask, ask me, why, why don't we have a cross in the building? This isn't the church building. Why don't we have a cross? Wouldn't it be nice to have a cross? Maybe have a cross in the front of the pulpit. Somebody said to me a while ago, uh, why, why do I have an issue? I, I had a Bible with a cross on it, and I had blacked it out. So why, why would you do that? You're a minister. You should, you should be happy with a cross. You should be wearing a cross yourself and so on. And why is that? The, the reason is this, why this was the primitive or the particular Baptists of a previous generation, you don't see crosses in their buildings. You don't see crosses in their books. Why is that? Why was it the Puritans and the Reformed folk did not put crosses in their buildings and they sought to, to remove it? John Hooper of Gloucester, he removed as much as he could all the crosses in, in, in the cathedral in Gloucester. Why is this? Well, it is because of this very thing that we are talking about. We are Christ-centered. We are God-centered. We are Bible-centered. We are not altar-centered. That's what it is. We are not altar-centered. We are throned-centered. Throne-centered. And that's the point of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was not an empty thing. The altar, I should say, the altar was not an empty thing. The altar had God's throne on it. And that was the focus. God redeemed us from sin that we might obey from his throne the will that he spoke to us. And you see, that, that, that gives a whole new perspective on life. If someone is altar-centered, uh, altar then we would say, again, it jars against us because we've heard it so many times. If, if a person is cross-centered, whatever that means, and all they talk about is, for, is being forgiven of their sins and don't get anywhere beyond that, then all the songs that they sing is about just them waiting and going to heaven. That's all that it's about. But then you sing the Psalms and you see, actually, it's a different kind of a thing. There's a battle going on. And the psalmist speaks about all sorts of things. And there are wonderful hymns of the past that speak on those things too. But so much of the new songs, it's all about heaven. And it's because of this theology of an altar-centered theology that people say, well, we don't have anything to do. And so, so for example, it was announced about speaking, uh, you know, writing regarding uh, to, to, the, to the government, regarding that issue in the schools and so on. People say, oh, well, that's nothing to do with us. We don't involve ourselves with politics. We don't have to do any of these kinds of things because I'm just waiting to, go, to be raptured. I'm just waiting to go to heaven. That's all I'm here for. My friends, th th this affects our thinking on these issues. And on every level of our society, then we have to say, if... I am throne-centered, Christ-centered, Bible-centered. I want this to dominate everything, all parts of society. This is what God desires. This is how he, he rules. And before death, there are people who say, well, there's not much for me to do then. 
I just wait for to die. It's very morbid view of things. Now, if you think that's an ex exaggeration, you go to most evangelical Bible-believing churches in UK and in, in, in throughout the Western world, and you, you listen to what they are singing, what they are, the subjects are, and so on. And that's why there is no teaching throughout the Old Testament and other parts of the Scriptures. There is, they're focused on certain, certain things. They, they, instead of saying now that people of professed faith, now they must live for the Lord, serve the Lord, be willing to lay down their lives for the Lord, to be busy in the Lord's work. They are just saying, oh, all we need to do is evangelize, evangelize, evangelize. Well, I have no problems with evangelism, as you know. But it's, what about the life? Are we living after the Lord Jesus Christ? This is what the Apostle Paul says, and this is the focus, is Christ and his throne and obedience to that throne and because Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords and he's set us free from sin and he's redeemed us that we might obey him. That's the emphasis of the scriptures. So you have words in Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh. But now this is how they walk. They walk after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For that, what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. And then it says this, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. I hope you see this. In order that Jesus removed the condemnation in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And this whole idea the Apostle Paul is using is actually getting uh, from the law that was in the ark. Blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, silencing the cries of a broken law against us. And when we were put in a right relationship on the basis of that propitiation, with God, then we realize that the God who saved us is also our sovereign, and we stand before that ark to be instructed as a redeemed people on how we are to live, how we are to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And you see, that's the great difference between Christianity, true Christianity, biblical Christianity, and pagan religions and primitive religions. Primitive religions and false forms of Christianity, they have their propitiation now they have your killing animals for their gods now but never get past that you look at the primitive religions they never get past the offering god uh, depreciations to satisfy guilt to remove guilt and that's uh, all life's about for them how to get their guilt away and yet god removes the guilt at the beginning of the Christian's life, so that you can get busy, not worrying about how you're going to get this guilt away, but how you are to serve God. So there's was the old saying, and some of you know, we are saved to serve. We are saved to serve. That's the, that was the motto that used to be preached again and again. The Christian is saved to serve, not themselves, but the Lord. And you see, there's an oversimplification, but nevertheless, I think 
an accurate one of the great differences between what is Reformed Christianity and what is called in general Calvinism and Lutheranism in Protestant history. The difference between Calvinism or Reformed doctrines and Lutheranism and the history of Protestantism um, you see, is this. Martin Luther and John Calvin, let's put them, I'm oversimplifying it. There's the great question that Martin Luther was seeking to know. What must I do to be saved? How can a man be justified with God? The sad thing was, that's where he stopped. That's where it stopped. Calvinism asked the question, what must I do to be saved? And then that I am saved, how may I glorify God? How may I enjoy Him forever? That's the thing. So we must ask the question, what must I do to be saved? How can a man be right with God? Justification by faith alone, but then living for the Lord. That's the thing. That puts a new perspective in life. So say to yourself, I am throne-centered. I'm Christ-centered. That's what I am. I'm God-centered in our preaching, in our teaching, in our life. This is what we are. That's the perspective of life. Now, where are the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle now? Where are they? Are they people going looking after them, finding them? Imagine if they found it. Imagine they found the Ark of the Covenant. What, would, what good would that do to anybody? Would it be um, something that would be beneficial to us? No. You see, the, Jesus Christ fulfills all of that. They are in Christ and they are in His church. God has given to us His Word. We are the custodians. The Church of Christ has become the custodian of the Word of God. What kind of a life then do you live? That's the question I want to finish with. Do you see how the worship of God instructs us in the way of salvation and also in the way of life that pleases and glorifies God by following His commands? That's why the commandments of God are not grievous, the Scripture says. They shouldn't be, because you see, Christ has saved us so that we might follow him in the way of his commandments. And he, he says, I delight to do thy will, O my God. And in 1 John 5, verses 2 and 3, we read these words. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. So there's a commandment keeping in the New Testament. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. Well, I've spoken on various things here that maybe you have not thought about as you have read through uh, the, the teaching regarding the Ark of the Covenant. But I trust that we would take it to our hearts, and we would think through these things and ask the Lord to write His word upon our hearts.